Now we're moving into the time of the scripture reading for today. The scripture passage for today is from the Gospel of John, according to John, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 13 to 25. Um, if you don't know where that is in the Bible, there's a table of contents at the beginning, and you can use the pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Again, that word, pew. So. Right. John chapter 2, starting from verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you were going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. It's the word of the Lord written for his people. Amen. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everybody. If this is your mug from Lost and Found, just come get it from me later. Um, quickly, uh, if you weren't at the congregational meeting, the results of it are on highpointchurch.org slash next steps. You can find out about the overage vote, the budget vote, and the five new elders that we elected. I'm not going to go over that now. All right, I'm going to try to say a lot in like 40 minutes. Okay, so hold on to your pew. Um, <laughs> one of the most common things I end up talking about, I, in fact, I had two or three pastoral counseling points this week where this was a, a theme, is um, people's frustration with their emotions and others' emotions. Um, people frustrated that like they don't have as much good emotion as they want, but they seem to have an abundance of bad emotion, you know, and that the stuff that they feel like they should care more about, they don't really care that much about. And the stuff that they feel like, you know, is like very self-interested or like their anger and they, they like, they feel a lot of passion and intensity about that. And then they realize that like that, they, that's kind of what they experience with other people too. In fact, most people complain about other people, if you can imagine, right? They're like, they're, you know, other people, they just don't seem to care. You know, it's like when it comes down to like when I need somebody or I need somebody actually to listen to me, they don't really care. But when it comes to like themselves and them getting angry and them wanting what they want, they get like really angry, you know? They got all kinds of emotion to do damage and to hurt people and to be, you know, claim stuff for themselves and to be assertive and all that kind of stuff. But like the kind of like tender, caring, peacemaking, meaningful emotion that like could make the world a better place. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of it, right? And some people are like, well, Nick, I don't, I don't, I don't really feel that way. I did not come to church with that question. Okay, well, someday you may meet somebody who does, you know. Um, you're also probably delusional. I mean, there's a lot of people that um, have like sort of made peace with the fact that they have very little positive emotion for something other than themselves, what the Bible and other cultures have called zeal, right? This idea that, um, so some people are like, well, I just don't have a caloric like personality. I have a more melancholy one. Or like, if you believe in witchcraft, I'm an Enneagram 5. Or like, they, they, there's some kind of thing where they like, I'm, that's, that's two-thirds joking, sorry. But like, th this, this sort of like this idea that like, I'm just going to explain based on my temperament or my trauma or whatever pharmaceutical I'm taking that like there's just a good reason why I don't have the positive emotion that I actually owe others and it's part of a healthy human being and that would honor God meaningfully and that would make me more like Jesus. And the fact is, all those excuses stink. Now, that doesn't mean they're not understandable. The human condition is full of that which aggravates all the bad emotion you could possibly imagine and seems to like dull all the good emotion you can imagine. But here's the thing. As John is trying to tell us who Jesus is, 
one of the things he wants to tell us is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who expresses perfect humanity and offers us a remade perfect humanity, was a man of perfect zeal. Believe in him. Jesus, I was telling my wife this week, I was like, baby, John is hard to preach from. In fact, all the gospels are kind of hard to preach from because it's not like there's a lot there, but like literally the whole point of this book is for you to believe in Jesus. And everybody who comes to church, they think they already do. And so it's kind of like, hey, John 2, it's about Jesus that you should believe in him. And he's like, well, I'm, I mean, I sort of do. And it's like, okay, well, I guess we're done. And, but we're, but we're, you know, but we're not, right? Because it's like, well, but it's this Jesus you're supposed to believe in. And this Jesus is the man of perfect emotion, perfect zeal, the right kind of disinterested, yet focused, passionate intensity about all the right things and not about all the wrong things. He is the contradiction of our age. And here he is saying, believe in me and be like me right? Um, you might summarize it like this by saying, zeal for the Father's house can consume you. Consume is a, a meaning, a word with two double meanings, right? It literally is the word for eating up food. In Hebrew, the word for, ze- for to be consumed is the verbal form of the word for food, literally. It's to eat the food is what it means, right? And so you're like, you, you can be consumed by zeal, meaning you can be eaten up by it. And it doesn't mean it in the like, eat you, eat the inside of you out, so there's nothing to you. It's like literally, your life will be consumed by it, and you're like, that doesn't sound like a good metaphor. Well, here's the thing. You're in the process of dying, okay? I, I mean, I know that's surprising. I'm doing a funeral later today, so it's a little home-hitting for me, because I watched the person die last week, and I'm doing their funeral this week. And it turns out that human beings are best at ignoring the things that are actually most relevant. And one of the reasons why Jesus seems so relevant, I, just, I, tell, I find it hilarious when people are like, well, I just don't think the teachings of Jesus or that religion is very relevant. So because you don't think you're dying, that's why you think that, right? Like, like most of the most important things in life are the things that we are the best at diverting ourselves from. Remember Pascal in the 1700s who said that mankind is most capable of diverting himself from thinking about what's important. That's why you don't think Jesus is relevant because all the things Jesus cares about are the real things. That's what we divert ourselves from. And so then we go, well, Jesus isn't relevant. Well, he turns out, He's as relevant as you can connect your mind and emotions with reality, including your impending death and all the backtracking meanings of things that precede it. And concerning those things that matter, Jesus is the man of perfect zeal. And he can make you like him. If you would be willing to recognize and believe in the Son of God, if you're not a believer, and if you are, if you would be willing to recognize and believe in the Son of God as he actually is, if you are a believer. A cheeky way to say this, that the last couple of verses cover, would be something like this. You don't need a faith that you can believe in. You need a faith that he can believe in. So many people I talk to, like secular, modern people like Nick, I just, like, I just need a Jesus that I can believe in. I just need a credible, I need a credible faith that I can believe in. And look, like, on a certain level, I understand. There are, like, intellectual questions and modernity and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Agree. But here's the thing. You know what you really need as an emotional process and as a creature that is more than that just, and is not a floating brain? Is you actually need a, a faith that Jesus can believe in. That's that real. That can then affect you enough that you could be a person of perfect zeal. Or better zeal. Okay, a couple of things about this. Three, in fact, because that's what preachers do. The first is, is that zeal requires cleansing. God's house isn't a trade house. One of the things that, um, hold on, I'm not going to push this button. Um, there are some things that everybody kind of knows aren't supposed to go together. So you're not supposed to put your dirty feet on the table. Um, most people don't eat while going to the bathroom. People usually use different pipes in their house for sewage and, and fresh water. It's very common. Um, like in, in my house, I actually have a completely different place. I keep my clothes for manual labor and my clothes for like work and like leisure or whatever it is I do when I'm not working. Um, 
They're just different. But there's, there's other things that it seems like they would go together, like logically, but they just, they don't, they shouldn't really, okay? Like little, for little kids. Um, there, I think C.S. Lewis made this joke. I, I can't remember, but it's like, it, when you first have to explain to um, a child what intercourse is, and a child might ask, because it's like, and you're, and you're like, and they're like, is that gross? And you're like, well, it's, it's sort of, but it's also sort of pretty fun um, and enjoyable. And they're like, oh, enjoyable, like eating chocolate ice cream. And you're like, <sighs> sort of. And they're like, would it be better if you did it and ate chocolate ice cream at the same time? <laughs> and you're like, some people think so, but you, probably not. <laughs> right? Better to focus, right? And so there's, there's some things like, they're just, you know, they're not really supposed to go together. And like, so like, um, like, like watching TV whilst eating in bed. I mean, that sounds like a great Saturday, right? But you really shouldn't eat bed. You really shouldn't have a TV in your bedroom, especially if you're married. And you really, like, are supposed to use your bed for sleeping. And if you don't do those things, you tend to not realize how much you're eating when you're watching stuff. You tend to watch stuff instead of talking at night before you go to bed or doing the other thing you could do instead of talking, which is also bonding. And it, like, these things actually interfere with each other in ways that aren't helpful. And it, like, seems like it would make perfect sense to put those together. And it really doesn't if you're thinking about your long-term well-being. If you really think about what you are as a human being and how you're forming yourself one way or another. Does that make sense? Or, like, my, my kids, every kid that I teach to mow the lawn thinks it is a great idea to mow in flip-flops or Crocs. And I get that. There's like this whole movement of people who are like, yeah, I, I'm on my bare feet. It's so great. And I was like, yeah, it's great until your lawnmower throws a rock and severs one of your toes. It's fantastic. Like I read this article this morning by a pediatric study that like has a whole article about how they do not mow the lawn in non-hard shoes. And then at the end of the article, they're like, look, you can walk through your lawn right when you finish mowing it. And your feet will be all hot from having shoes on. It'll feel fantastic. Especially if you like green feet, right? So one of the things that people sometimes don't realize is that this idea of sanctity versus contamination is really deep in the human heart, right? Like even very secular philosophers like Jonathan Haidt, who explains everything irreligiously, is like, look, one of the things that like human beings really key on is the idea of like what should be set apart and only used for one thing, and it cannot be contaminated. And that— that philosophy runs all through every religion in the world, but also runs through like movies like Moana and people's feeling that like things shouldn't be contaminated. And it's not just, those are not just from hygiene impulses. Every culture in the world ties what they consider cultural contamination to hygiene contamination. And they use the same language. And it's extremely intentional in secular modernity to unhitch those two. Right? But this idea that Jesus is using and that God affirms in the Old Testament, when he says, look, you have to make distinctions between things. There are things that are not the other things. And if you don't distinguish between those two, you will be confused about reality. All of your reality will kind of run together, and you'll be able to say, see how things are the same. But you won't be able to see how things are different. And seeing how things are different is fundamentally important to you surviving and growing and thriving. And one of those things is the market is not the sanctuary. Those are not the same thing. The market is a good. It's very important. It's necessary for human flourishing. It is half of the creation mandate to go out and take dominion over all creation. And human trade and inner working is all very good. And to do things like sell real estate or to have a restaurant or to work even in government, these are all inherent goods that need to be done as people trade with each other for a society in which people can thrive and flourish. It is necessary. In fact, it was necessary to have a temple market in John 2. God mandated the sacrifices. And Jesus went to the temple for—say it with me. Did you get it from the text? It was right in the text. He was going up for Passover. And so on Passover, everybody—every family is sacrificing a lamb, right? So all of these— Animals need to be purchased, right? And in order to do that, because Jews have to come from wherever they are to Jerusalem, there are Jews coming from different countries, and they're coming with different currencies, and those all have to be exchanged for purchase locally. All this market needs to exist. Okay, but if you've ever been to a place where people are all selling the same thing, where does everybody want to be? As close as you can possibly get to the entrance of wherever you're going, right? Like, that's the best booth to have. And so you can see this period. Over years, people are like, 
You know, you, you, can, you can buy a lamb anywhere in Jerusalem. You can buy a lamb anywhere in Israel. But you've got to get to the temple still unblemished, right? So you can offer it as a sacrifice. And so what's happening is like the markets like are ever encroaching closer to the temple. And then at some point, like Billy Bob Anderson literally has the slot just outside the door to the temple courts. Like, and his family like has that spot. They've had it for generations. He's like, oh man, we sell lambs like crazy. Because people like just walk it up. We mark them up 20% maybe, but like we haggle a little, but then we sell them the lamb. They walk right into the temple. Everybody loves it. And so I buy 85% and everybody's like, I hate that guy. And so then over dinner at one point with one of the priests who's a little shady, one guy's like, what if we, would it be so wrong? If like, I mean, there's that whole place just inside the temple where people are basically just milling around, right? The court of the Gentiles, right? And like, why not just have like, some stuff in there. Like, and think about this. The temple, the priests, you could tax those, right? Like, people could pay you a little bit for it. But you could, like, you could run, you could rent the whole place out. And people, the priests are like. I'm, I'm listening. You know, it's like, and over some period of time, from some concatenation of human actions, what happened was, there were a lot of people selling inside the temple. And it was a market that God had, implicitly commanded to exist. And so Jesus shows up, God incarnate, and he should be thankful. And he isn't. <laughs> right? Um, people love this passage. They love this passage because, um, because uh, Jesus is not a very violent person, except for in his second coming when he judges the kingdoms of the earth. This is a period of grace in which he offers the entrance into his kingdom of peace to all who will believe. And he overlooks enormous sin from people. And so people who want to advocate for justice, they love this passage because it's like the one time where Jesus does anything remotely violent, right? And it's kind of, they're like, we love this. Because it's like, so if like whatever your like du jour is, it's like, you're like, yeah, like global climate change. I'm going to like flip over Ford F-150s and like make a whip to like attack gas stations. It's going to be fantastic. Or like if you're like anti-racist, you can be like, I'm going to break this whole street because Jesus would flip over tables and he would take a whip and like, or like, you know what I mean? Or like, I'm going to go to that climate change conference and I'm going to set the place on fire, right? And then we'll have some global warming. You know, it's like people get this idea in their head that like whatever is their thing to do, it's like Jesus he would be on my team on this, and he would not be okay with, like, me being a peacemaker. He would want me to flip over tables and kick some butt and make a whip and get after this thing. And it's like, well, man, be really, really careful with that logic, okay? Because on some level, we know God is damnably angry over every sin, okay? And yet, there are a number of situations in which Jesus like, can open up a six-pack of butt whooping on all kinds of people for all kinds of sins, including racism, including financial oppression, including slavery. And he doesn't. Okay? This is when he gets lit. He walks into the house of God, and the house of God is a market. And he goes ballistic, okay, in a very holy way. But the language used here is not considerate. He makes a whip. Whips are not thought of as like nonviolent, peace-loving instruments, right? And he's flipping things over and he's driving out. I mean, there's a lot of— I don't know if you, Okay, I've actually driven livestock in my life. I mean, I, you wouldn't look, know what to look at me but you can't see my back tattoos. And so like when I was a kid, I, like my dad had a bee farm, and we'd like drive animals. And it's not, you don't just go, hey cow, hey cow. You gotta like be like, hey. You gotta like poke them and slap them. And especially if there's like more than a couple, you know, you gotta like work them if you don't have a dog. And so Jesus is like, this is a big area. Like if you look at the archeological structures, like it's like, it's, a, it's pretty massive. And he's like driving them out of everywhere. Like this, this could have taken a couple of hours, right? And you can just imagine these people like, what the flip is this guy doing? And he's like, listen, my father's house is not going to be a market. You see, what he understands is there's some things that if they're not separate from other things, and if they don't come before other things, they become completely corrupted. Religious faith or any dynamic in which human beings are developed and virtue is built is a very dangerous place to put commerce. It's one of the reasons why political liberals don't like private schools. 
It's a bad argument and it's a wrong argument, but that's why that had that moral impulse, right? They're more efficient. They educate kids better. But you can understand why people are afraid. Like the minute you get a market in there, it's going to make things bad, right? What Jesus recognizes is that the, the one thing where there's the most perverse incentive relative to a market is worship. Who is God? What does God ask for and demand of us? And who must we be because he says so? And how does that orient us towards everything else? You cannot confuse that with profit. Why? Because Jesus says, listen, the main competitor to the heart of God is not other religions. It is not Allah or some group of Hindu gods or something like that. It is mammon. He's very clear in Matthew 6. He says, listen, a pastor said recently, some people think secular, secularism is neutral. Secularism is not neutral. Would you really like it if Walmart came out and said, listen, we're going to have this thing where like we have different commerce days for religion. And on Monday is going to be like Islam day. And like on Tuesday is going to be Jewish day. And on Wednesday is going to be Christian day. And like some Christians be like, that's fantastic. At least we get a day. And he's like, listen, it's mammon day every day. Like all the substructures of secularity, of perversely incentivizing your mind, pulling you away from virtue. There's like this game show of like moving shells that you're like, oh, that's fantastic. When the whole thing is full of idolatry to the very bottom. And it's not because it's the name of another God. It's because of the whole structure of what commerce and our own pragmatism does relative to markets when we are not first ordered in the place of sanctuary worship. We don't have the virtue to have a society. The incentives even of a free market, which is the best normal functional system to develop human virtue. The idea that if I get something from you, and if you get something from me, we freely trade it. We consensually agree on what we're doing together. That's the best system there is, okay? There's no better system than that for how people should interact with one another, and it sucks. You understand? It does not work with human beings. Why? Because we have all the wrong kinds of zeal. We're zealous for ourselves. We want to charge as much as we possibly can. We want to stick it to that person. We tell that person we're going to show up on Tuesday to rebuild their bathroom. We just say, well, I've got a better job. I'm going to that one. I was talking to a leader in another country, among pastors in another country. He's like, look, I'll hire somebody. I'll teach them how to do something. I'll pour my life into them so that we can do something together for the gospel. And the thing I taught them to do, they then go market to another Christian company or like ministry that has more money. And then they leave and they switch that thing for like $300 a year. And it disrupts all the ministry in India. And all these people know that the Christians are growing just as corrupt as the Hindu leaders that have the government money. Why? Because the pastoral work is becoming a marketplace. We are not good enough to let the marketplace into the sanctuary. The question is, does your life have the necessary sanctuaries? And do you have the zeal or will you accept his zeal to clear them out? Right? That's it, man. I'm sorry. It's like, that's the thing. It takes a cleansing, right? I mean, how many of you look at your phones during the worship service? I remember some years ago, there's a guy, he was at an Anglican service in, I think it was in Uganda. And there's like, there are all these Anglican bishops sitting on the stage during the Eucharist, during Holy Communion, okay? And listen, those people really treat it like it's holy, okay? And then it's like, it's like and they're like, five of the six bishops were on their phones on the stage during the Eucharist ceremony. Adoring the body and blood of the crucified Son of God for our horrific sins towards each other, the injustice of the world. To adore the Christ who did that for us, that it would change us. And we're flipping through some stupid crap. We have no sanctity. We don't know when our lives are being polluted. Because as secular people, we don't even admit that moral controversy into our minds. We think it's necessarily bigoted because if I start thinking about contamination, I'll say you're contaminated and I'm a good person and so you're out. And so you can be my scapegoat. And so it'll divide us. Friends, 
it's programmed to the human heart. Every human being does it. Just look at the highly progressive American secular movement and ask, do they have sanctity ethics? Do they think people are polluting their movement? Do they think that there are people who are going to pollute our society and hurt it if they're not pushed out to where they can't contaminate us anymore? Um, worse than I've ever experienced in my lifetime in America. You can't get it out of the human heart. All you can do is order it by virtue to be zealous about the right things, which is, includes in Jesus' seal to love our enemies. Our sin is the lack of sanctity that must be put out of the camp, not the people who look different from us. Okay, we're still on the first point. This is a problem, okay? So, so, so first of all, like, just at church, will you let this hour have some sanctity? Okay, listen, if you have to pull out your phone to fact-check me, because I have said something that is so factually preposterous, you cannot continue with the sermon. You can't even, like, okay, fine. Okay, listen, I don't want you to be lied to, and I'm not using this as a game, okay? For, listen, for anything else— just put it away. But it's not just that. In your heart and minds and soul, you've got to put all that other stuff away. You're not here for other stuff. Even, listen, even listening for your own personal application. I'm going to push this even further, and I know this is advice of mine. But listen, people are like, well, I'm hurting. I have this thing going on in my life, and you should speak to that pastor. No, I shouldn't. No, I should not. Okay? Everybody's here. Everybody has different problems. Everybody has different lives. Everybody's in a different life stage. I'm going to tell you something true about Jesus the Christ. I'm going to apply it to a few things. And then when you leave, and you're going to focus on Jesus the Christ, who suffered and died and rose from the dead for you, who is enough for you in everything that's going on in your life, everything that's ever going on in your life, and everything that ever will go on in your life, including your death. And then when you walk out of this room— and that problem comes up in your face like a freight train, you'll be ready. You'll be ready. Right? I think that this is one of the reasons why we need a personal devotion time. Like a, a time or a place or a way that we set apart in our day for God where nothing else is going on. Even if it's 10 minutes. Right? You can, you can sit down Say, for the next 10 minutes, I don't have children. I don't have a husband or a wife. I don't have a job. I don't have, I don't have any of that stuff. All that exists for the next 10 minutes, and then hopefully growing over time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, there's nothing that matters but God. Now, hopefully, when I go out into the marketplace, because of this moment, I can live like God is the most important thing. But the only way I'm going to go out and live anywhere in the marketplace like God's most important thing is if there's some sanctuary, some place, some time, some moment, some place of how I give my attention where there is nothing competing with God. The only way we can seek God first and His righteousness and all these things will be added to us, the only way you could ever get in that mindset is if there's some place of sanctity, some place that's been cleared out. And you see, the one thing Jesus is willing to be violent about is that there's some place that's cleared out. Nothing redemptive can happen without some place that is cleared out. And this place is supposed to be that place. It's the only place. You understand? There's no, there's no way around. Jesus is showing us his actions. There's no way around this. And if there's one thing he will reform, it's this, because this is the reform that has the capacity to produce all others. Every human reform, every human virtue, every movement of human justice, everything that, it, that is coming out in goodness starts with a place where God is God and we are formed and shaped for some interest other than our market interests, other than our base interests, other than our selfish interests, where God is everything and we become his alone. We are satisfied in him and lost to our worldly selves. And in that place, we can be shaped for something more, something bigger, something less than just our primal grippings. And that changed person then can go out and make everything better. And so Jesus will make a whip for one thing. He will flip over tables for one thing. He knows the human person needs a place of sanctuary. They need a place of physical sanctuary. They need a place of mental sanctuary. They need a place of sanctuary where they go that is uncorrupted, where only one thing matters and only one person matters, and where they can find out again who they are and what their life is for and what their life means, and they can find conviction for the thing they've given themselves to that's not what they were meant to be, and they can repent and believe and reorient and understand and see and grow, and then they can scatter back into the world 
to be what they were meant to be. You have to clear the temple. And once we go to the New Testament, what's the temple? You are. Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple that we all are. We are a corporate temple. But then again, you are that temple. And it says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, listen, you are that temple. And anybody who destroys God's temple, he will destroy them. You see, what he's saying is, unless you, in faith, find a sanctuary in God, you express faith in that way, you will destroy yourself. And then God will destroy you. There's a lot more applications I can make, but we've gone on for a while on that one. We meaning me. Okay, and my personalities too. You need zeal, not just stronger lusts. His disciple said, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69 in the Old Testament. Okay, now, the word zeal is not one we use that much anymore because we, we have turned it into the noun zealot, and zealot is a bad word. So if somebody really cares about a movement and we think that it's a bad movement, we go, they're a zealot. So like if somebody's like really for communism, they go, um, well, you're, that person's a zealot, right? Because well, communism's bad and they're really for it, so they're a zealot, right? And, and a zealot is literally a name for a ancient Jewish military group that tried to push out the Romans, right? Which they didn't think was a bad thing, right? But we use that word that way. And in the Bible, where zeal is shown— Sometimes it's like really violent. Two of the places that are the most famous are there's this place where the Israelites are going out of um, Egypt and they are very tenuously God's people. They had been idolaters. They're going into a land of idolaters. God's showing them how to not be idolaters. And they run across uh, the people of Moab. And apparently like the dynamic between the young men of Israel and the young ladies of Moab was very positive, and Moab was like, this will be really great for our treaties with Israel. We could get more fighting men, and like, let's like do as much as we can. And so there was this mixing of like young men and women, and then, and they were worshiping the Moabite goddesses, and there was a lot of intercourse happening and so forth. And so what happened is God judged the people, and people were dying of a plague. And right when all that was happening, they're literally at the tent of meeting. God's like, look, you're gonna have to go out and like kill everyone. That's God's judgment. And while everybody's talking, there's this priest named Phineas who's like kind of standing kind of at the back of the line of the priests who are going to have to do this. And he walks, watches some guy who's like a prince in Israel. He's like the son of one of the main elder families. And he's got like some chick. And he's going into his tent with her like, look, right in front of the tent of meeting. And he's like, and he gets a spear and he says he goes into the tent and he drives the spear through the guy and into the woman. So you can imagine the position that they're in, okay? And kills them both. He drives it through him, he says, and into her stomach. So they weren't lined up perfectly, if you know what I'm saying. And so, and, and then it says, God said he rescued the people of Israel. He pulled back the plague, and Phineas was honored by God. And he saved many lives by killing two, it says. Okay, another one is Jehu, who, like, basically he's this guy, and, and God's like, okay, I need you to basically kill everybody in this one family, which does not sound good, okay? But it turns out that family's Ahab's family, which has Jezebel in it, and they had been killing everybody in the northern kingdom that they didn't like for a long time. And there was a ton of blood on the land, and God's like, look, this needs to get cleaned up. This family needs wrath, or it's going to destroy this country forever. And so he goes in, and he, like, gets every heir of this king. And of course, kings have harems. They have lots of heirs. We're talking about, like, 75 people. He gets them all in a room. He's like, man, I love you guys. And he kills all of them, right? And then he's like, let's have this big celebration to the idol Baal. And he gets all the priests of Baal. It's like hundreds of them. He's like, look, I don't want anybody who worships Yahweh here. You all got to get out. And they're like, man, Jehu's going to be awesome. He's going to support Baal. This is going to be fantastic. They get all get on the temple. And then they all worship Baal together. He like makes sure everybody actually worships the fertility God to which people sacrifice their children. He wants to make sure he's got the right group. So they're all in there. There's no stragglers. He's got, and then he sends in soldiers and they slaughter everybody. And then he throws this guy's mother-in-law out the window, which that part I can—no, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't connect with that at all. <laughs> Lucy's not watching this. Don't worry. Um, and so sometimes people are like, that's what zeal is, right? That's what zeal is. It's like, like Nick, you say Jesus is like this peacemaker, but like there are these examples in the Bible of like militarism, like people like taking up strength, like doing something. Like can't we like spear somebody for Jesus? And it's like, well— <sighs> There's this place in the Gospels where they're going to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to get himself killed, right? 
and they're going through this town of Samaria, and the Samaritans don't, they hear that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and they don't like that because the Jerusalem people, they, they hate the Samaritans, and they're like, well, we don't want Jesus here then. And so these, these two disciples, the sons of thunder, okay, and so these are like kind of impetuous, like, guys, right, with like very voluptuous personalities, and they're like, Jesus, you want us to call fire down from heaven on these guys? Now, there's some, some manuscripts that have the addition, as Elijah did. Because there's this passage in the Old Testament where these soldiers come and take Elijah captive, and he calls down fire from heaven, and it just kills everybody, right? And so Jesus is like, and all it says in Luke's gospel is, he rebuked them, and they went to a different town. He's like, no, we're not gonna kill these people. You don't know a spirit you're of. You, like, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't get it, right? Like, Jesus, in, in Romans 12, it says, listen, even when people do stuff to you that you think they deserve revenge, you give them something to eat, you take care of them. Because listen, if they respond to grace, great. Then they become children of God just like you. And if they don't respond to grace, your gift to them becomes an increase in their damnation because they rejected goodness. You're heaping burning coals on their head is literally what it says. By doing good to them. Why? He says, because you need to leave room for God's wrath. You want to get revenge? You want to get real revenge that you think you actually deserve? That's not necessarily bad. Let God do it. He promises if it's deserved and the sin that is done against you is unatoned for, they will not come to God for forgiveness. That he will execute the revenge that is the justice you actually deserve. And if you don't let him do it, then you demonstrate that you are not just and you deserve his vengeance. That's how it reads. That's why we're peacemakers, because we want to make peace. And if we're rejected, that's God's issue. And if we're accepted, we've been successful as the emissaries of God to bring in anyone possible to the grace of God. Right? The ways in which zeal well is expressed throughout the scriptures as something that is always good is one is like mourning for the sin of your own people that we're a part of. Like, we're part of a society. And there are things in the society that are awful. And when God finally judges the people in Ezekiel 9, he says to his angel, go through the, my people, and I want you to look for the people who, in, like, in private, mourn and lament about the state of our people. That they care. They can't do anything about it. They may have tried in their own personal circle. They can't do anything about it. But they, they still are— angry about it. They're sad about it. They're upset about it. They care about it. Right? There, there are two or three or four injustices that are common in our culture that I pray about regularly because I want to be one of those people. I don't want to be like, well, you know, it's, it's gone on since the beginning of the world. It's going to go on to the end of the world, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way things are, and that's all there is to it. And like, maybe that's true. Maybe I'll never be able to change those injustices. Maybe I'll never even have any impact on them. My protest is that I'm sad about them. And apparently that really matters to God in his judgment. Right? Another is like prophetic zeal. Like there's a place where John the Baptist says to the king, you're not allowed to have your brother's divorced wife. Like that's not okay. And he gets imprisoned and beheaded for it. And, and frankly, friends, you see this with Jesus, right? Well, before we get to that, it's also true that zeal, when God says, my zeal is going to do this, most of the times in the Bible, it's for rebuilding and healing things, right? So when he talks about the Messiah, or when he talks about um, healing the land under Hezekiah in 2 Kings, he says, this will be a sign to you. Notice sign. John uses sign six times. Okay, so there's a kind um, Hezekiah, this year you will eat grass grown by itself. And the second year, what springs from that? But in the third year, you will sow and reap and plant vineyards. You're like, well, why don't they— why don't they plant vineyards right now? Because they're surrounded by the Assyrian army, and if anybody leaves the city, they'll get their throats cut. That's why, okay? So he's basically saying the siege is going to last a little longer, but it's not going to last forever, right? But the third year, you'll sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above, for out of Jerusalem will come a remnant. And from the Mount Zion, a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. Something seems impossible for the restoration and healing, because God is passionate about it. It will happen. Same thing in Isaiah 9 where he's talking about Jesus coming. We read these at Christmas usually, right? He says, Of the increase of his government, that is the Messiah, in peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, right? And if you look at what Jesus does, 
Jesus is just one man, okay? He has a few disciples at this point. He has no connection to the temple authorities. He has no connection to the military authorities. And he has no connection to the, um, to the market authorities, right? And this guy, like a lunatic, goes into the place of the highest power in Jerusalem, okay? And he insults and ruins the interdynamics between the politicians, the priests, who are basically the same thing at this point, the business people, and the bankers all at one time. All right? I mean, can you imagine somebody with more of a death wish than that? And he just does it. The thing that is special about the zeal of Jesus is he de- he's a dead man. He doesn't care what you're going to do to him. Right? There is nothing freer. People are like, you know, if I throw off Jesus and God and all these religious requirements and moral rules, and I don't live up to anybody else's expectations, and I, and I don't even take nature as a guide for what I'm supposed to be, and I give myself complete freedom to define myself for myself and do what I want, when I want, I will be free. And friends, that is the most anxiety-inducing, human-destroying, evil-perpetrating method of seeking to become free that I could possibly imagine. The way it says in the Bible is don't use your freedom to cover up for evil, right? The greatest form of freedom is a person who has made peace with death and God and that no one can threaten them. That is freedom. When somebody says, I'm going to take your job, and I'm going to take your home, and I'm going to take your family, I'm going to take your life. And you're like, listen, you do what you got to do. But I'm going to do what I've got to do. That kind of person is terrifying and powerful. And they don't have to be born in some upper class or have $3 million or like have a lot of people signing up for them to be on the ballot for the presidency. They don't need any of that stuff. They just have to be unafraid and to know who they are and to know what they're doing and having a passion for something bigger than themselves. They have to have the right kind of zeal. And Jesus has that right kind of zeal. And he's offering to you that right kind of zeal. And this is the only way it happens. Right? Let's end with this. At the, end of the, at the end of this passage, there's this place where it says, no, you know, no, no, no. There's this, there's this piece I need to say. So I'm going to say it even though time's an issue. Um, the Jewish leaders say, because people say all the time, they're like, Nick, but why doesn't God do more? Right? For us to believe in him. Why does he do more? Like, why can't he just appear above the Capitol building like every other month and be like, I'm here, I exist, believe in me. Right? Like, atheists say that kind of stuff all the time, right? And they're like, you know, if he really wanted to believe in us, he'd do something like that. Here's the thing. The Bible has answered this question so many times for anybody who wants the answer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're not a good person. A good person would see that and go, oh, God exists. I should change my whole life and do what he, like, we're, but we're not good people, right? So like in, in, in the book of Luke, where the, like, the, the, the rich man dies and Lazarus dies, and, they, and the rich man says, like, let me go back and be an apparition like a ghost for my brothers. And if they see me like as a ghost, a ghost comes back from the dead, surely they'll believe. He's like, that, that's how it works. That's not how human beings work. It may be like, seem rational to you, but human beings as emotionally processing creatures don't behave that way. If they won't do the right thing for the right reason, it doesn't matter what options you give them. They're not going to do it. I don't know if you noticed this, but like people are like, why didn't Jesus give them a sign? It would have been great if Jesus gave them a sign. He gave them a sign. He gave them three signs. Three signs. So one, he cleared the temple. Who does that? Who makes enemies of everybody? Who begs people to kill them? Who says, like, I have the, I have the right of God to clear out the house of God. I know you're going to kill me. I'm doing it anyway. Like, millions of people have been in and out of that temple, in and out of that temple. All of them were religious. All like, I believe in Yahweh. I think Yahweh is fabulous. And I believe in the God of Israel. And I'm celebrating Passover. I'm celebrating Sukkoth. I'm celebrating, I'm celebrating, I'm celebrating. I am a devout believer. And not one of them was like, this is bullcrap. Now what? And Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh. And he's just like, that's a miracle. If you can't see that that's a sign, you can't see a sign. 
right? And then they go like, well, what sign will you give us? He's like, I'll give you a sign. And he's not just being coy. He's kind of being coy, but he's not just being coy. Jesus is never just being coy. If you want to misunderstand him, he will tell you stuff to give you ample opportunity to misunderstand him. Okay, why is it like that? I'm not totally sure. I think that's good parenting, but here it is. He's, but he's also sincere. Every time Jesus is allowing himself to be misunderstood, he's also being sincere, right? Mark 4, there's different soils. We'll get to that in another sermon. Okay, probably a different year. So he, he comes, he's like, Here, here's the sign. You destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. Meaning his body, right? Well, the sign wasn't going to happen right then, but it was going to happen. You see, if they had followed him, and if they'd listened to him, and if they considered him, and if they'd been there, like the disciples were, they would have got it. And they didn't, because they weren't willing to follow him. They weren't willing to listen. They weren't willing to see how far this goes. They weren't willing to wait 10 minutes to see if he could show them a sign. And you're like, well, 10 minutes, like, that, was like, that was like two and a half years later he got killed. Okay, yeah, but here's the thing. Keep reading the passage, right? Two verses later, it says that many people during the Passover— Passover is only eight days long. It's all in Jerusalem. It says many people saw the signs that he was doing— and believed in his name. What that means is, in the following days, maybe in the following hours, in the city of Jerusalem, if they had just followed him 600 yards, at some point in that week, they would have seen him do miraculous signs. But they didn't. So he did the miraculous sign of being like no other human being on earth. Didn't do a thing. He promised a sign that no human being could possibly do. And you're like, well, but they thought it was raising the temple. Right, well, either way, whether it's rising from the dead or rebuilding a 40-year construction, he's saying, I'm going to do something that is impossible. And that if I'm not doing what God says, I could not do, right? And then thirdly, and remember, that's how Nicodemus is going to start things in, John, in the very next chapter. You couldn't do this stuff if God wasn't with you, so what's going on, right? And third— he does miracles in the city that week. And they don't see it. They don't know. Why? Because they want a sign right then. Do what we tell you to do. And like Jesus doesn't give people the middle finger, but verbally, in how he goes, he's like, I'm not going to do this. You don't care. You're not asking honestly. You don't want the truth. Your temple isn't clear. I could drive all the horses out of here. They weren't horses, sorry. Cows and whatever. But in you, there's nothing but squawking doves and wandering goats and money clinking around. You can't hear the voice of God. You're not listening. You don't care. I give you a thousand signs. I'll give you three. I just did one. And you're like, give us a sign. That's how it works. Here's how it works. And then we'll end. The way this works is this. All a sign can do is prick curiosity in the human heart that has any divine nobility left in it. Okay? There's a God-shaped hole, as Pascal said. There's, there's like a part of the image of God that's still in you wants, wants something better, but it's all mixed together with depravity, right? And so the sign, all it can do is make you curious. It can make you curious. Like, is there more here? To where you would then listen to Jesus. But here's the thing. Because you and, and I are so filled with the marketplace of worldliness, and we're not cleared out at all, hardly any of that teaching makes any sense for a while. So what has to happen is we have to do what St. Anselm said in the 10th century. He said, 11th century, he said, I believe in order that I may understand. You actually have to become Jesus' disciple. You have to believe in him, and you have to obediently follow him as his disciple. And, and learn, and learn, and learn, and learn, and learn, and, and accept the time it takes for the things to get sorted around, and for him to show you who he is, and for him to work it all out. You see, the only people who understand Jesus in this passage are the people who understand him looking back three years later. Do you realize that? In both cases, the disciples understanding what happened is in the past tense. Later, they look back and they go, Wait a second. Remember Psalm 69? Remember what it said? Remember what Jesus did? He fulfilled that better than David ever fulfilled it. That whole psalm is about Jesus, the Messiah, 
the one with real zealousness, the kind of zealousness we're supposed to have. And after he rose from the dead, because the disciples experienced his death and his resurrection, because they were there, because they actually followed him, because they went through the process and were present for the signs and listened to them and let it work out, even though they didn't understand it many times along the road, because they were with him long enough, at some point the penny actually dropped and they were like, oh my gosh, he's the son of God. And when he did this, he was saying, I will prove that I can clear the temple of the human heart and make a place of sanctity where we can know God and actually exert ourselves in life truly if and only if we realize that he will tear down the temple and rebuild it in us personally, just like he could have done it there. Just like they let it do it to him. He was torn down and rebuilt himself and he can tear us down and rebuild us through faith if we trust and actually follow him and don't just demand a sign or want to keep our temples full of goats, or if we just like look at one side and go, oh, I believe. And then like that's like good enough somehow, and we don't realize if that's all that happens, we're just going to fall away in 20 minutes and go back to the cluttered heart that we had before. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we think of the words of Mary just a few verses before where she says, do whatever he tells you believe in him. Do whatever he tells you. I pray that um, you would, you would work in us not just oh, like a little bit, of, where we wouldn't think faith is just like, well, I believe in Jesus. I say I like him. These people believed in his name, but they weren't his disciples. They didn't follow him. They weren't in it. And in this culture, there's just no way we're going to make it if we aren't willing to follow you long enough to get rearranged and cleared out in a way that's really profound so we can have the right kind of zeal. But I pray that for some people here, even just listening to who you are, that Holy Spirit, you're working in people, a, a, a rise of emotion in these, just this last hour. They felt something good in them that felt like something that was a human emotion that you could arise if they focused outside of themselves, they weren't afraid, and their life was pointed at something truly good. And I pray that that feeling that they had, though our faith is not based in them, we are meant to have them. We're meant to live in that kind of zeal. And just like you are the purpose else, one that can clear us out, we pray that in us, you would, through discipleship, build a zeal that is both productive for good, joyful for us, and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name.